We are continuing our study of the book of Proverbs, looking at the sayings of King Solomon and what we can learn from this ancient collection of wisdom. Uh, if you've been with us here throughout the series, you know we've been kind of covering a different topic each week, studying the book uh, thematically. And so today we're going to be looking at the subject of wine. What does Proverbs say about alcohol? Now, this is a subject that is a hard one uh, for a pastor to preach. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on this subject. And uh, even if you've been in church for a while, maybe you've never heard a sermon on this subject. Uh, there are a number of factors that make it a little bit of a tricky subject to address. First of all, it's always very possible that someone in the room, either now or in your past, has had struggles with alcohol. And so that alone makes it a bit of a touchy subject. Secondly, many of us, maybe we've never had an issue with alcohol ourselves, uh, but we've been affected by others who had a problem with it. Maybe an abusive parent uh, who would come home drunk. Maybe you've been uh, impacted by a, a drunk driver who caused a terrible accident. And so that makes it a difficult subject in and of itself as well. Thirdly, this is a touchy subject in the church in particular, uh, because depending on your church background, you may have been convinced from a handful of passages either that wine was totally fine, getting drunk is no problem, uh, or the exact opposite, that all wine is evil and, and to be avoided. Uh, because really, on a subject like this, if a clever preacher isolates a couple of texts in the Bible in order to try to convince you of his view and ignores the rest of what the Bible says— he can make a pretty compelling argument either way on this topic. And so all of that makes it a, a bit of a tricky subject to address for me. My goal today is to give you first a broad survey of what the Bible teaches on the subject. And then at the end, we'll kind of narrow our focus into the book of Proverbs and what it says about uh, wisdom, wine, and drunkenness, how we as wise people can best decide what each of us should do. And I would request from you this morning just a listening ear. Uh, give consideration to the passages we're going to be studying. Uh, we're going to try to be as biblical as possible. I don't want to be dogmatic where the Bible is not. I just want to give you honestly what the Bible teaches on this subject. And I'll tell you, at the very end of the sermon, I will not have answered all of the questions that you may have with total clarity, because I don't think I can uh, while being faithful to Scripture. So there will be a little bit of ambiguity uh, at the end. There are some aspects of this debate that are simple and straightforward in Scripture, as we'll see, and there are other aspects where good Christians may disagree. Uh, one more thing to note before we dive into this study, in case anybody's wondering about my own practice, I have never had any wine, I've never had any alcohol in my life, okay? So I know some of you are going to be trying to figure that out as I'm talking, just let's get that out of the way. Uh, I've never drunk. Uh, it, basically, I was taught in the home that I was raised to abstain from alcohol completely, and uh, I don't have any problem not continuing in that practice, so I've just chosen to do that. All right, as we begin to look at what Scripture says, on the subject of wine, it's very important not to read just one or two passages in isolation from the rest of the biblical witness. And by the way, this is a very important principle. Uh, just in general, as you're reading and studying the Bible, be very careful about forming a conclusion based upon a single verse. Uh, it's a very bad way to look at things. Rather, we want to look at the totality of what God's Word says on a matter. And again, this subject in particular, I think far too many Bible teachers do this on, on both sides. 
where they'll present just kind of one or two passages very simplistically and uh, try to just convince you of their view. For example, if I were here today trying to convince you that drinking wine is totally fine and there's nothing to be concerned about, here's a passage I might show you, Ecclesiastes 9.7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. See? God approves of drinking wine. No problem. Uh, well, there is a problem. Uh, this verse is from Ecclesiastes, and if you know your Bible, then you know that much of what is said in the book of Ecclesiastes isn't actually true. Okay, The same is true of the book of Job. Uh, both of these books start off with the, the person in the book kind of struggling with different things in his life, thinking through things, and he says a lot of things that actually at the end of the book, he ends up saying, I was kind of wrong about all of that. And so it, it shows the whole progression. So if you pull a verse out of the earlier parts of Ecclesiastes or Job, you can't necessarily take that as a statement of fact. If you pull a random verse out, you really don't know unless you're reading it in its context whether it's meant to be read as truth or not. For example, in the book of Job, uh, Satan does quite a bit of talking. Now, we don't want to take a sentence that Satan said in the book of Job and say, well, there it is, the Bible says this. Okay, so that would be a problem. Uh, always make sure you're understanding the context of what we're reading. And so be very careful about building your theology off of a verse or two. Here's another one in Ecclesiastes that uh, similarly would be a big mistake to just take at face value. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Now there's a good life verse. Let's put that on a bumper sticker, right? Uh, but okay, I hope the point is clear. You can't just kind of pull one sentence like that uh, out of a book and act like that's all that the Bible says. And just like some people do this to claim that wine is okay and drinking is fine, nothing to be concerned about, in the same way, the opposite is also true. Uh, many Bible teachers will appear to one, uh, will appeal to one or two verses in the Bible as if that's just a blanket statement uh, that wine is evil, that any sort of alcohol is sinful. Uh, for example, you might read Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so you just read that verse and it seems like, well, Wine is something that we should avoid at all times. But if that was all that the Bible said about it, there wouldn't be so much debate amongst Christians on this subject. The fact is that Scripture presents a very nuanced and multifaceted view of the role that wine should and shouldn't have in our lives. Some aspects are simple, as we'll see. The Bible always condemns drunkenness. Make sure you get that uh, very clear in your mind. Drunkenness is always condemned in Scripture as sinful. But Scripture stops short of saying that any and all consumption of wine, even in very limited fashion, is sinful. In fact, it demonstrates some ways in which it can be properly used. Yet with that also are many repeated warnings about the potential dangers associated with wine. And so to be honest with what Scripture says, we need to look at all of the Bible's teaching on the subject, not just a handful of texts in isolation from the rest. I'm going to give you a lot of that today. We're going to work through quite a number of passages of Scripture, not everything. We don't have time to cover uh, every single passage, uh, but we'll do the best that we can here. One issue to cover before we start walking through these texts, uh, you may have been taught, depending on your church background again, 
that wine in the Bible is really just grape juice. Now, some of you will laugh at that notion, uh, but how many of you, I'm curious, how many of you have heard that taught before, that wine in the Bible is grape juice? Okay, quite a few of you have. Um, so, so the problem with that is it's just demonstrably untrue. For example, Second uh, Samuel 13, verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Now, are we really going to suggest that Amnon's heart was merry with grape juice, that he was just really happy about the sweetness of his grape juice? Okay, obviously, this is referring to him beginning to get tipsy, beginning to get intoxicated. Now, there's a more sophisticated version of the grape juice explanation. And this argument says that basically every passage in the Bible that criticizes drinking wine or warns about the dangers of wine, those are all talking about fermented alcohol. And then all of the passages that seem to be saying there's a place for drinking wine, those are all talking about grape juice, which is really convenient. Uh, now, if I can be frank with you, that's a little bit of a lazy answer, and it simply doesn't hold up to scrutiny. The fact is, grape juice didn't exist until 1869. A Baptist named Thomas Welsh uh, came up with this method of pasteurizing wine to halt the fermentation process. And his goal in doing this, by the way, interestingly, was so that he could have communion at his church uh, without drinking wine. It's ironic uh, because today many Baptists will claim that, wine, again, wine in the Bible was grape juice, when in actuality, uh, Baptists are the ones who invented grape juice. But prior to this invention of pasteurization in the 1800s, grape juice simply didn't exist. Uh, wine in the ancient world was always fermented. Uh, even the freshest wine, the most new wine that hasn't been aged, it's still somewhat fermented. Uh, grapes begin to ferment while they're still on the vine. And that's why you have this pasteurization process in which the wine, uh, basically the, pro- the natural process of, fer- of uh, of um, fermentation is stopped and reversed by pasteurization, and that's where we get grape juice. But if you merely take grapes off of a vine, press the juice out of it, and pour it into a cup, what you have there is not grape juice, that is wine. Now, that being said, wine in biblical times often wasn't as strong as the stuff available today. Uh, usually, people in the ancient world could not afford uh, straight wine, and so they would get a diluted mixture, like kind of watered down uh, with water. And so uh, this dilution would make it far less easy to get drunk, but still it wasn't really grape juice. It was partially fermented. There was a way of boiling the wine down to a syrup and then mixing it with water to create a weaker version of the wine. That would be closest to what we would call grape juice today, uh, but that certainly wasn't the common practice And in many cases in Scripture, just as we'll see in a moment, it just obviously isn't this. Uh, And in case you're you're still unconvinced about the grape juice argument, you're still hung up on that, let's look quickly at the famous story in John chapter 2. This is where Jesus turned water into wine. Uh, This was the passage years ago that forced me uh, to reconsider my position on this whole subject because, again, I was convinced uh, that wine in the Bible was grape juice. That's what I was taught my whole life. Uh, But then I studied this text and realized that just didn't work. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So those are very large jars. In fact, if you go to Israel today, uh, in the city of Cana, you can go and see some jars that they have. Uh, jars is kind of weird. But they're huge. They're like a bath almost uh, made out of stone uh, that they've uh, discovered. There it may very well be the ones mentioned here. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus turns water into wine. This is the very first of his miracles. And verse 10 makes it abundantly clear that this isn't grape juice. This isn't even watered-down stuff. This is strong, fermented wine. Uh, look again at what the master of the feast says there in verse 10. He takes a sip of the wine, and he's surprised. And here's what he says. Usually, people serve the strong wine first, the good stuff. Uh, then, after people have drunk freely, they bring out the watered-down stuff. And the Greek word there for drunk freely... Uh, Methusko literally means to become intoxicated. Okay, so drunk freely maybe would be better translated. When the people have become drunk, then they bring out the cheap wine. Now, this makes sense. This still happens today, where people would bring out strong alcohol, get people drunk, then they bring out weaker stuff, and they can't tell the difference uh, because they're they're drunk at that point. And so the bridegroom here is, say, or the master of the feast is saying, uh, that good wine, the strong wine that you usually bring out first, You've waited until now to bring out. Okay, so the wine that Jesus made was strong. It was surprising to him that it was such good quality. It was, in other words, aged wine. Uh, and the point that John is making here and in including this in his gospel is to emphasize the miracle of Jesus, that he had turned water into really high-quality aged wine instantaneously. So he's stressing how miraculous this was uh, that Jesus did this. It's not like somebody just mixed a little bit of uh, leftover wine in there and it tasted a little bit. No, it was strong, not watered down at all. That's the whole point here. So all that to say, the grape juice argument simply doesn't work. It, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Wine in the Bible was indeed wine, including the wine that Jesus made for this wedding celebration. All right, let's back up now. We're going to start working through Scripture, kind of just starting in the Old Testament, working our way straight down. We're going to start in the book of Genesis and try to see the totality of Scripture's teaching on this subject. Again, we're not going to be able to cover everything, uh, but you'll get a good idea here of the positive and negative passages as we go. First, Genesis 9. Uh, I hesitated to even mention this one, but it is the very first mention of wine in the Bible, so we'll cover it, and I won't give any sort of graphic explanations, but Genesis 9, verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So Noah and his sons, they're getting off the ark uh, after the famous flood account. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, 
and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So there you have the first mention of wine in Scripture. And again, without getting into too much detail, obviously, it's not a great situation. Uh, Noah gets drunk, and the end result was a shameful uh, act that brought about a curse upon Canaan. And so, so far, the portrait the Bible is giving us of wine is not off to a very good start. It seems like wine is something to be avoided. Uh, now, if you think that story is awkward, it gets even worse in Genesis 19. We're not going to read this. Uh, you can look that one up on your own. It's a very messed up, sick situation where Lot's two daughters are wanting to have children uh, to carry on their family line, and so they get their dad drunk, and that's all that I'll say about that. You can read the story for yourself. It's pretty sick. But again, wine seems like a very bad thing that leads to shameful and sinful outcomes. Then we come to Genesis 14, and here you might be really confused. If you're just reading through the book of Genesis, uh, every mention of wine so far has been pretty bad. But then all of a sudden you run into the story of Melchizedek. And if you're familiar with the New Testament book of Hebrews, you know that Melchizedek was almost certainly a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And here's what Genesis 14 verse 18 says. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, speaking of Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And so here you have Melchizedek, a representative of God, or again, very likely God himself, appearing to Abraham and blessing him. And he gives him bread and wine. And as you're reading Genesis, again, this seems like a strange thing. Wine is what got Noah drunk, led to the curse of Canaan. Uh, wine is what, what let, was used in this uh, messed up incestuous situation with Lot and his daughters. Why would God give Abraham wine? And so already, just in the, the first few pages of the Bible, we're given a somewhat complex view of wine. It's certainly dangerous. We should all be aware of the negative consequences that can come from overindulgence. And yet, there seems to be an appropriate place for wine. It's not portrayed as simply a vice that ought to be completely avoided. All right, that's enough of Genesis. Let's go to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Okay, so here we have... An absolute prohibition of drinking wine or strong drink, right? Wrong. Uh, this is God's instructions to the priests specifically. He's talking to Aaron and to his sons. That's the lineage of the priests. They were chosen by God to be the only ones allowed to enter uh, the tabernacle, which was the place of God's presence. It's called there the tent of meeting. It was a place where men would meet with God. 
And so God doesn't say to them, uh, to these priests, you're never allowed to drink wine or strong drink. He says, don't do that when you're going to go into the tabernacle. In other words, God is warning the priests, you better not come into my presence in the tabernacle intoxicated. And as a precaution, don't drink any wine or strong drink when you're going to be going into the tabernacle. Make that a rule for, for all of your descendants. No one is to enter the place of my presence having drunk wine or strong drink. <clears throat> okay, on to the book of Numbers. Uh, here we arrive at the instructions for the Nazarite vow. We've talked about this before uh, when we were in our study of the book of Acts. You may remember the Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow for a period of time. And so here are the instructions for this. Numbers chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of the grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Okay, so the Nazarite vow, this is something you would voluntarily do to separate yourself to the Lord for a period of time. It would be similar in concept, maybe as uh, New Testament Christians, to something like fasting, where for a period of time you go without certain things uh, as a way to dedicate yourself to the Lord. Now, one of the instructions for this vow was to abstain from any wine, any strong drink, any juice, and again, that's not really right, quite the right term, probably referring to the, the process that I mentioned of boiling it down and then adding water. So even very weak wine you were supposed to avoid. In fact, even grapes. You're not even supposed to eat grapes during this time. Nothing produced by the grapevine was to be eaten during this Nazarite vow. And if you keep reading in number six, uh, there's also instructions about not cutting your hair during this time. That was part of the whole uh, ritual. You're supposed to let it grow out. And again, this is all Jewish kind of symbolism that seems really weird to us today. Uh, but then at the end of your vow, whatever that period of time was, verse 19 says, the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled in one unleavened uh, loaf of the basket, one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Okay, so if you wanted to consecrate yourself to God as a Nazarite for a period of time, you could take this vow, and it included abstaining from wine throughout this whole time. But after the vow was over and you completed the sacrifices and the rituals, you were okay to drink wine again. Uh, some Nazarites in, in Scripture were Nazarites for their whole life. You think of John the Baptist, you think of Samson. Uh, those would be uh, their, their entire life, they were consecrated to God as Nazarites, and so they never drank any sort of wine. But that was a rare situation. Most of the time, uh, this was a temporary vow. All right, on to Deuteronomy. Uh, here's one that a lot of people are really shocked to find out is in the Bible. Because again, some have this idea that wine is uh, basically just grape juice, strong drink, that's the fermented stuff. And so uh, the Bible says it's okay to drink wine, but it's not okay to drink strong drink. Well, as it turns out, both of those premises are flawed. Uh, not only is wine clearly not grape juice in the Bible, but 
Strong drink, whatever that's referring to, isn't even always condemned by God. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. You shall tithe, this is God speaking, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So basically, God is telling them to have this yearly celebration, a feast before the Lord, a time of rejoicing in which they are to eat and drink and have a a big uh, celebration with your family. Verse 24, if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household. Now, some of you didn't know that that was in the Bible, did you? Uh, That's a very interesting passage. God is clearly telling the Israelites They are to have this yearly feast, and during this time of celebration, buy whatever you want. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever you desire. Then come together as a family to eat and drink and celebrate before God with rejoicing. So for the Jews, this would be sort of like in America, our Thanksgiving meal, right? It's a once a year kind of celebratory thing, where as a family, we kind of enjoy uh, feasting. And God says that apparently during this feast, at least... Wine and strong drink are perfectly appropriate. Next, 1 Samuel 1. Uh, Here we're going to get into one of the negatives. I told you that all throughout the Bible, there's kind of positive and negative passages uh, concerning wine and its proper place. Here's one of the negatives. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah is praying to the Lord for a child. She's been struggling uh, for years at this point with infertility. And so she's come to Shiloh, which was the place of worship, Uh, And she's offering sacrifices. And now she's by herself praying to the Lord. And it says there that she's praying silently in her heart, but her lips are moving. So she's sort of whispering a prayer to God, uh, asking for a child. And Eli, the priest, sees her and he kind of assumes that she's drunk. Uh, Looks like she's just sort of in a corner muttering to herself when she's actually just praying. And so he gets the wrong idea here. But verse 12, as she was continuing to pray before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have not drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now, I bring this up, this text up, because clearly Eli the priest uh, misunderstood what was going on here, but he seems to think that drunkenness was sinful. He looks at Hannah, she appears to have been drinking, and his reaction shows us that this godly man, Eli, who is the spiritual leader of Israel at the time, he clearly understands drunkenness to be a shameful condition worthy of rebuke. And so he says to her, put away the wine, put away the strong drink, uh, get out of this lifestyle. So don't get the idea that just because the Bible doesn't go so far as to outright condemn all drinking of wine, 
That, they, that gives you permission to go get hammered. That is simply not the case. Uh, drunkenness is condemned in the Old and New Testament, as we'll see. All right, next, Psalms 104, verse 1 and following. We're going to end up at verse 15. So Psalm 104, 15 is the one that mentions wine. Uh, But I want to just read this preceding portion so you can get the feel for it. Here, the psalmist is praising God for all of the things that he's done, the wonder of the created world, all of the good gifts that God has blessed uh, humanity with. So verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment and stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers of flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it would never be moved. You covered it with a deep, uh, covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So here, wine is said to be a good gift from God. Uh, Just like the grass that he causes to grow for the livestock, the plants that he causes to grow for mankind to, to grow and to harvest, so too God has provided wine to gladden the heart of man. In other words, it's not something we should consider to be evil, Uh, Wine is a gift from God. Of course, it's not bad. I think some of us have this idea that wine is a man-made invention, like we came up with this method of fermenting grape juice and making it into wine, but that's actually the exact opposite of the truth. Grapes naturally ferment and produce wine. You have to interrupt that natural process and reverse it in order to get grape juice. And so if we're saying that wine in and of itself is bad, that it's a negative thing, we're saying that God made something bad, which of course contradicts the entire creation account of Genesis in which God repeatedly says that everything that he made was very good. And so although this is perhaps, again, a hard concept, uh, depending on your your church background, uh, to, to embrace, it just is the case that the Bible presents wine as something good. It is a gift from God. It is not an evil. Let's go one step further then. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord your God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So as you're reading that, hopefully uh, some alarm bells are going off in your head and you're thinking, wait a minute, that sounds like Revelation. Uh, Revelation 21, very similar language, wiping away the tears from our eyes, death being swallowed up, it's no more. This is a description of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal kingdom of God. And back in verse 6, apparently God is going to make for us a great feast in his eternal kingdom that includes rich food and well-aged wine. So just let that sink in. Aged, fermented wine will be present in the eternal kingdom of God as a part of our celebratory feast. So as you look throughout the Old Testament, there's actually quite a few positive comments about wine. Uh, particularly in the prophets. It's seen as a blessing from God. Uh, One more example of this would be from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 10, where we're told, I will strengthen the house of Jacob, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine, Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So drinking wine many times is referred to in this way uh, in the prophets as really not a negative thing. Now, there are some passages that show us the dangers of wine. Several of those are in Proverbs. We're going to see those uh, in a few minutes when we get there. But here are just a couple from the prophets uh, to kind of balance this out, to say, yes, wine is a good gift from God. God made it. It's a, a natural thing that is a part of our created world. At the same time, there is a danger in going overboard with wine. So Isaiah 28, verse 7, These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. <clears throat> they stumble in giving judgment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Similarly, in Hosea chapter 4, uh, verse 9, we read, It shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. So both of these passages in Isaiah and in Hosea are pointing out that one potential danger of drinking wine is that it can impair your judgment. It can take away your understanding. It can cause you to stumble in giving judgment. And so uh, as a priest, as a prophet, as a leader of the nation of Israel, it was important for you to be in control of your faculties and not to overindulge in wine to the point of being under the influence. So that's the Old Testament portrait of wine. There are Uh, Again, we're going to look at the Proverbs passages later, which are mostly warnings. So there are some warnings about the potential dangers of it. But then wine is also presented as a gift from God. There are passages, examples that show us uh, Lot and Noah and others who drank wine and made a mess of things as a result. But there's also positive examples of wine being used in feasting and celebration, uh, including some that God clearly approves of. There are some specific prohibitions on wine for the priests when they enter the tabernacle, for those who take a Nazarite vow. But so far, the Bible clearly has not outright condemned the use of wine. 
Now, as you turn the page to the New Testament, you find pretty much the same sort of thing. Uh, You find warnings about the dangers of wine and some very straightforward commands not to be drunk. We're going to look at those again in a minute. But then you also have passages like we saw at the beginning, Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding celebration. And as we said before, this was clearly fermented wine. Jesus, in fact, was often criticized by the Pharisees for drinking wine. Uh, Luke 7, verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here, uh, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees had been critical of all who God had sent to them, even people that were kind of opposites of each other. So John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He never drank uh, any sort of wine. He fasted for long periods of his life. And the Pharisees mocked him for this. They said he must have been demon-possessed. Then along comes Jesus, and he's very much the opposite of John the Baptist in these ways. Uh, He feasted regularly. He didn't partake in the weekly fasts that the Pharisees commanded. And Jesus also drank wine sometimes. I mean, he says it right there that he did. And so they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, of course, those accusations were false. Those are exaggerations. He wasn't, uh, Jesus didn't get drunk. He didn't live a gluttonous lifestyle. But my point is, if Jesus had been a teetotaler like John the Baptist was, these accusations from the Pharisees wouldn't have even made any sense. Uh, They're accusing him of being a drunkard because Jesus did at times drink. Now, I believe he drank in moderation. I don't believe he ever uh, was intoxicated. But clearly, at, at Cana, he creates wine for the people, and apparently he drank wine himself on occasion, and it was totally fine for him to do so. So, having read all of those passages in the Old Testament, really, this shouldn't surprise us. If wine is a good gift from God, if it's not an evil thing in and of itself, we really shouldn't be surprised that Jesus could drink it in a way that was appropriate, that wasn't overindulgence. It'll only come as a shock to you if you've only ever encountered the warning passages about the dangers of drunkenness and you've not considered these other texts. Okay, now that we've kind of worked through the Bible's portrait of wine, again, there's a lot of passages we don't have time to cover, let's try to distill all of this down, pun intended, uh, to some principles, okay? Let's put this all together. Number one, wine is clearly dangerous. The Bible makes clear through statements and examples that wine has the potential to cause a lot of unnecessary and serious harm. And I'm sure many in this room can attest to that fact. Number two, wine is not bad in and of itself. It has good uses. It was created by God. We can't forget that. Wine is a good gift from God. It can be used positively or it can be abused and misused. And by the way, this is true of a lot of things in life. Wine in this sense is sort of like the sexual relationship of a husband and wife. In its proper place, it's a good thing. Outside of its proper place, it is destructive and sinful. Maybe think of it like a fire. Fire in the fireplace is good. In fact, before the invention of modern heating, fire in the fireplace was essential to survive through the winters. Yet fire outside of the fireplace can become incredibly dangerous and destructive. Wine is something like that. There may be appropriate uses for it as a good gift from God, 
Yet it can be very dangerous if it's not controlled. Uh, another example maybe would be your car. Uh, cars are dangerous. Cars kill people all the time. Yet most of us own cars. We all drove cars here today. And so it can be a good thing if used properly, but yet it's also very dangerous. Number three, this is one we haven't really talked about yet, but medicinal uses of wine are clearly acceptable. This really uh, should not be debatable at all, I would think. In the ancient world, they didn't have our modern medicines and tools for anesthesia. Uh, if you were having surgery 2,000 years ago, they couldn't put you under. Okay? If you needed uh, your leg amputated, you had a diseased leg or something in the ancient world, the best they could do for you was to give you wine so you wouldn't feel the full pain of the operation. Uh, here's one example of this sort of medicinal use of wine. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, and he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. <clears throat> so wine would be used here to help <clears throat> excuse me, kill bacteria and contaminants in the water. Uh, Timothy was having some stomach issues, apparently. Uh, he was getting sick by some of the stuff that was in the water, and so Paul advises him, Mix a little bit of wine in your water. Now, these sorts of medicinal uses for wine are not overly applicable to us today. Uh, we have clean drinking water available. We have uh, better forms of anesthesia and medicine. But 2,000 years ago, when the New Testament was being written, wine was used frequently for these things. And of course, that would have been an appropriate use for it. Next, number four. <clears throat> the Bible does not say that any consumption of wine, is, or that all consumption of wine is sinful. Again, Jesus drank wine. Jesus made wine for others to drink. When the early church took communion, that wasn't grape juice. It was wine. Uh, so I think, again, we've seen kind of already plenty of examples that wine is not uh, sinful to drink necessarily. But here's just one more. First Timothy 3, verse 2. Uh, Paul is here giving the qualifications for pastors and deacons, so the officers in the church. And here's what he says, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, Therefore an overseer, this would be what we'd call today a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, <clears throat> not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, <clears throat> not a lover of money. So pastors here are told uh, they cannot be drunkards doesn't say they can never drink any wine, but it does say they cannot be one who overindulges to the point of becoming intoxicated. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's an even more clear statement. Uh, in verse 8 of the same chapter, here we have the qualifications for deacons in the church. First Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. So deacons are to be people who are not addicted to wine. If God didn't want them drinking any wine at all, he could have just said that, right? <laughs> he could have just said, deacons are to avoid drinking any wine, but he doesn't say that. Thank you. Excuse me one minute. <clears throat> so pastors are not to be drunkards. Deacons are not to be uh, addicted to wine, kind of the same point there. Uh, but he doesn't say, God stops short of saying, even for the officers and leaders of his churches, that they are to abstain completely. Uh, God says that, I mean, it, by, the Bible is perfectly capable of saying that. It says it for the priests, it says it for the Nazarites, right? During this time, never drink any wine. 
And yet God doesn't give that standard for New Testament Christians or even leaders of the New Testament church. So as wine is a gift from God, there are appropriate uses for it. Not all drinking of wine is sinful. Number five, drunkenness is always sin. Uh, Even those who are convinced it's okay to drink wine, they should never get drunk. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says very clearly, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh, It is debauchery for Christians to drink wine to the point of drunkenness. And if you want to know why that is, look at the rest of the verse, which says, be filled with the Spirit. So when you are consuming alcohol, uh, too much of it, it takes over. It begins to control you. It causes you to do and say things that you wouldn't otherwise do and say. Christians are not to allow other substances to control them, uh, to take away their mental faculties. Rather, we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so again, I want to make sure this point is crystal clear to everyone. Drunkenness in Scripture is always portrayed as foolish and sinful. And it often leads to even more foolish and sinful words and actions. Again, you see that with the story of Lot, the story of Noah, many other stories that we didn't even cover. Christians are commanded not to get drunk. Number six, being addicted to wine is also a problem. If you can't go the next six months without wine, that's an issue. And that probably means you should just stop altogether. Again, you have that uh, mentioned uh, in 1 Timothy 3 about the deacons. Don't be addicted to much wine. Here's another passage in Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And so the older women of the church given a very similar instructions. Don't be slaves to wine. Don't be addicted to it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. Here's another warning passage. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. So this is describing someone who is out of control in his consumption of alcohol. It's just sort of a, a part of his daily life. He's constantly consuming alcohol. This is a real problem. Uh, number seven, something can be technically not sinful, but still unwise. Or to clarify that, at the very least, unwise for you. Okay, And this gets to some of the reasons that I have personally chosen not to drink alcohol in my life. I've never drank, as I said, and I'm going to give you my reasoning for that here. First of all, it would disappoint my parents. Now that may seem like an odd place to start, but it does matter to me. My parents are more strict on this subject than I would be, And it's just not important enough to me to make this an issue with them. Uh, We're going to get to more of that in Romans 14 and where we're going to close with. But this should be a consideration for you. If it's something that's going to be an obstacle in your relationship with other brothers in Christ, I do think it's advisable for you to abstain. Secondly, I don't personally drink any wine because I'm a pastor. And again, while Paul stopped short of saying that pastors can't drink wine, there's certainly Uh, a level of of caution that Paul advises there. He mentions it in that list for a reason. Be very careful with your handling of wine. I don't know exactly where that line is, but I know that I won't be in danger of crossing it if I don't drink at all. Thirdly, and this is probably my main reasoning, uh, I don't drink wine because I have an addictive personality. I just know that about myself. Uh, My wife will attest to that as well. Uh, I don't own any video games. I never have. I don't have any sort of games on my phone because I know I would play them 
all the time. I just have that personality where I get really hooked on things very easily. It's very easy for me to get hooked on something and want it all the time. I'm a very all-or-nothing person. And so, basically, I just don't trust myself to be able to drink in moderation. Uh, there's also just alcoholism that has run in my family and my history, and so I don't know how much of that is you know, a genetic disposition towards it or whatever all of that is, but it just seems wise to me, given my ta- context, given my personality, uh, to abstain completely. Now, that is all specific to me and my situation. I don't think it would be wise for me to drink, but I'm not making a blanket statement about everybody else. Number eight, so something can be technically not sinful, but still be unwise, or at least unwise for you. Number eight, wine should be handled with caution. Just surveying the landscape of the biblical accounts, when someone drinks wine, often it doesn't go well. It leads to things that are very negative. The temptation to drunkenness and alcoholism also is far more of an issue today than it was in the ancient world. Uh, Back then, most people couldn't afford wine, or if you could, it was once a year during a feast or something. Today, it's everywhere. It's affordable. Most people in the ancient world didn't have the opportunity to really become an alcoholic. And so having a glass of wine at a wedding feast wasn't really a, a major concern, in part because it might be a year before they ever saw another glass of wine. But for us today, again, wine is everywhere. It's in every store you go. It's in every restaurant. It's just all over the place. And so it is a stronger temptation uh, now for us today. Also, wine today is in many cases stronger than it was back then. Again, often in the ancient world, wine was diluted with water. Most people could not afford straight wine. Today, there are many stronger forms of alcohol that didn't even exist back then. And you'll notice throughout the sermon, I have said nothing about those uh, because the Bible really only talks about wine. Wine is a natural drink that comes simply from pressing grapes and, and squeezing the juice out of it. Other forms of alcohol are concoctions that men have created, and they're often far higher in alcoholic content. So something like whiskey or vodka contains four times the amount of alcohol as wine. Frankly, I'm not sure if it's ever okay for Christians to consume something like that because the Bible really only talks about the natural uh, alcoholic drink, which is wine from grapes. But even if all you ever drink is wine, the Bible clearly instructs us to handle it with caution and not to overindulge. And so if you do choose to have a glass of wine with dinner every once in a while and you're very careful about controlling your intake of wine, you avoid the harder drinks, you limit yourself to one glass at a time, you never get drunk, if it's just not a problem in your life at all, I genuinely don't think there's any problem with that practice, if that's your case. But if, that, if all of that is the case with you, that's pretty rare. Most people today are not that disciplined. All right. That's the end of the introduction. Now on to the sermon. What does Proverbs say about wine? Don't get too nervous. We're going to go quick. Uh, since we went so long on the intro, we're going to work through these uh, texts in Proverbs very quickly. They're all very straightforward, very easy to understand. First, Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So even here in Proverbs, and and most of the passages in Proverbs about wine are warning about the potential dangers, but still, 
Even here in Proverbs, wine clearly can be a positive. It is here pictured as a blessing from the Lord. But overwhelmingly, since this is a book of wisdom, Proverbs is warning us about the dangers that wine can present in our lives. For example, in chapter 20, uh, we read this a few moments ago, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So Proverbs is telling us that wine has the potential to take over your life. Proverbs warns us that we can be led astray into foolishness by wine. Not only can it cause you to live foolishly and to make foolish decisions that you'll regret, but an addiction to wine will also lead you to poverty. Proverbs 20, verse 17, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Again, in chapter 23, we're told, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So just like people can have an unhealthy relationship with food, as is mentioned here, food, of course, is a good gift from God. It's something necessary to our lives, and yet you can overindulge in it. The same is true for wine. And a gluttonous or alcoholic lifestyle, Proverbs says, often leads to poverty. Overindulging on things that you don't really need, having out-of-control expensive habits, leads to a lack of finances for other more important priorities in your life. Also, Proverbs warns us that being addicted to wine, being a drunkard or an alcoholic, makes you undependable. Proverbs 26, verse 10, like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. Drunkards make terrible employees. They also make terrible family members, terrible church members, terrible neighbors. In every area of your life, someone who is drunk all the time is a burden on others and can't be depended on. Now, perhaps the most poignant section in Proverbs on the dangers of drunkenness is to be found in chapter 23. This is a bit of a longer section. Just listen to this description about all of the potential downsides and negatives that come with drinking too much wine. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast, meaning you'll be staggering and unstable. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. This is describing the life of an alcoholic. He brings unnecessary sorrow and problems into his life. He has strife with others, wounds without cause. Uh, Getting drunk often leads to physical altercations with others, unnecessary injuries. It leads to saying things and doing things that you'll regret. And this proverb is basically telling us all of that is really unnecessary. You can avoid all of it by not overindulging in wine. Wine also has an addictive component that seeks to take over your life. And again, earlier in that passage, you've noticed it's talking about specific types of alcohol, mixed wine. So this would be, again, seeming to be the sort of concoctions created uh, to make something stronger. 
And pretty much all of the dangers that wine presents are listed right there in that passage. Uh, One more text in Proverbs, just quickly. Chapter 31, this is written uh, by a mother to her son, King Lemuel. And verse 4 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So again, you see, Lemuel is being discouraged from drinking wine because it will impair his judgment as a king. While the medicinal usage of wine, for those who are dying painful deaths, is stated as a proper use, even of strong drink. So the teaching of Proverbs on wine, it's very much in line with what we've seen really the the rest of Scripture portray. Proverbs uh, emphasizes the potential dangers that excesses in wine can bring. And so handle it with care or abstain altogether, as Lemuel here is being advised. But whatever you do, don't let wine take over your life and lead you to ruin. We're way over time at this point. Let's just close with one more passage, though. I'm convinced that this is one of the most important passages of Scripture for the New Testament church, and I think all of us should return to it frequently. Romans chapter 14. Uh, There were controversies in the early church, differences of opinion on certain issues, like whether it was okay or not to drink wine, whether it was okay to eat unclean foods that were forbidden by the Old Testament Jewish laws. Uh, What about keeping the Sabbath, uh, the feast days? Do Christians have to do all of that? What about meat that was offered in idol worship? Was it okay to eat afterward or was it tainted? Uh, These were all debates within the early church. And here is what Paul says as he's here speaking into these controversies and trying to provide some guidance for these Christians in Rome. He says to them, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Uh, some of you were here back when COVID hit, and I, and I told you all, I kind of paraphrased this verse to say, let the one who doesn't wear a mask not pass judgment on the one who does. And let not the one who wears a mask despise the one who doesn't. In other words, we are all entitled to our own opinions and let people have different opinions on these disputable issues. Learn to be okay with other Christians in the church having different views on matters of opinion. Now, of course, this wouldn't apply to sin issues that are clearly right and wrong in Scripture. It's not what we're talking about. Uh, But it would apply to an issue like wine. I think if you're honest and you really deal with all of the passages that we looked at today, all of us would have to admit the Bible doesn't give us a black and white absolute condemnation of wine. On the other hand, it does provide warnings about the potential dangers and encourages us to be limited. Uh, So what each of us do with all of that is a matter of opinion to a certain extent. I've given you some of my reasons for choosing to abstain from wine, but you may decide something different for yourself. And on this issue, there is some room for Christians to come to different conclusions, and we ought to do so charitably. If at the end of the day, some of us in this room have different practices than others, it's really okay. But it's not okay 
For you and I to judge one another or despise someone who comes to a different conclusion than you. Uh, Paul continues in verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now that last sentence is also crucial. Whatever you think of the issue of wine, be fully convinced in your own mind. You do what you truly and honestly before the Lord believe is right. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. See right there, Paul is saying, uh, there are Christians who are truly seeking to please God, and you may end up with different practices on some of these disputable issues, like which laws uh, with regard to, to foods are still applicable or not. And Paul says, that's okay. Live your life in a way that you believe is pleasing to the Lord, and don't worry about what someone else does. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Do you get that? It's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean, meaning if you're not fully persuaded in these disputable matters that it's okay, Paul says don't do it. Don't violate your conscience. If after all of what we've looked at today on the subject of wine, you're, you're thinking, you know, man, maybe drinking wine really is okay in moderation. Maybe it isn't sinful. But I'm still really uncomfortable with it. I grew up a certain way, and I'm just not sure if I'm ready for that. Don't do it. Uh, don't get into the habit of violating your conscience. And again, for people like me, if you grew up being taught that wine is bad, you should never drink wine at all, that may have not necessarily been accurate, and you may intellectually come to believe a different position later in your life, but you might still feel uneasy about actually taking a drink of wine. And Paul says don't. Don't violate your conscience if you don't feel the freedom to do something like that. Unless you are fully persuaded in your own mind, you should abstain. Then Paul goes on to say, be sensitive to the impact that your decision on these disputable issues, these controversial matters in the church, may have on others. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, I said earlier, one of my reasons for abstaining from wine is simply I don't want to grieve my family over it. Uh, even if I don't personally have an issue with it, it's just not a big enough uh, deal to me uh, to make it a problem with others, uh, to offend someone needlessly. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be evil, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not, I'm sorry, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And just notice there in that verse, Paul's talking about a few different issues here again. Sabbath observance, certain food laws in the Old Testament, but he's also talking about drinking wine. Uh, Even back in the first century, Christians came to different conclusions based upon reading the same Old Testament text that we looked at today about whether or not it was okay for them to drink wine. And Paul says, don't drink wine, don't eat meat, or don't do anything in the presence of your brother if you know it's going to offend them. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul acknowledged that wine was a disputable issue even back then. And here in Romans 14, he does not give us a clear right and wrong answer on it because it's just not a black and white issue like that. Instead, he gives us these principles for relating to one another in the church. As we may have different practices in these gray areas, he calls us to live our lives seeking to honor and glorify God with these decisions. Romans 14 is spiritual maturity 101. It takes a lot of spiritual maturity to say, that brother has chosen something slightly different than I on one of these controversial issues, and even though I wouldn't do that, I genuinely have no problem with him. I'm not going to be judgmental in my heart towards him for doing something I wouldn't personally choose to do. So, to wrap this up then, to the stronger brothers on this issue, Paul would say, if you really believe that drinking wine is okay, then you, you have freedom to do so in moderation. But if it's important to you, if it's a really big deal to you, then you have a problem. If the thought of going the next year without drinking is something you're just not willing to do, it has way too high of a place in your life. If you drink openly in a way that you know is offensive to other brothers in Christ, and you have no concern for that, then you have a heart problem. Paul says, don't flaunt your freedom. To the weaker brothers, if wine drinking is a major issue in your theology, you have a problem. Would you be more concerned about a brother in Christ having a glass of wine at dinner or having a lack of joy in his life, a lack of love, a lack of humility? Because those other issues are far clearer in Scripture and seem to be a far bigger deal to God than an occasional glass of wine. As Jesus said, don't swallow a camel and strain at a gnat. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you think someone is disqualified, for example, from serving as a deacon in the church because they have a glass of wine twice a year, you have a higher standard than the Bible. Now, if there's obviously a legitimate issue with drunkenness, that's different, but some of us weaker brothers really do have an outsized negative reaction, even towards very limited consumptions of wine. So in conclusion then, the Bible's teaching on the subject of wine is a bit more complex uh, than you may have been led to believe. Wine is a gift from God. It has been used in good ways, and it will be a feature in the eternal kingdom of God. 
And so for some of us, that's a radical shift in thinking that we need to come to terms with. If we've always viewed wine as in and of itself an evil substance to be avoided. At the same time, Scripture warns us that in this fallen world, wine can be misused and it can lead to many dangers and sins if it is not handled with wisdom. So in light of all that, let's take a few moments now for prayer and reflection on all that we've looked at today. And as we pray, I want to ask you to do two things. First of all, ask God what your personal practice should be with regards to wine. Uh, Some of you may need to confess an unhealthy addiction, a foolish habit with wine that needs to be repented of. Some of you may decide today that you should just abstain from wine altogether. That would be the wisest choice for you. And others, perhaps may decide to set up parameters and limitations so as to avoid being led astray into excess. So that's the first thing to pray about, is your own personal practice. But then secondly, ask God to give you the proper attitude towards those who come to a different practice on this issue. If you believed in the past that it's sinful to drink wine, understand, as we've seen today, that's simply not what Scripture says. But what is clear in Scripture is that it would be sinful for you and I to judge another brother in Christ on this issue if they aren't actually sinning. Don't despise your brother or judge your brother who isn't sinning, but it just has a different standard than you. And so let's ask God then uh, to give us all a right heart attitude on this issue that is often divisive uh, within the church, to be charitable and to seek the things that lead to peace. Let's pray together.